Would you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Genesis 6, verse 4. This morning we looked at these chapters for quite a bit. And one of the doctrines that comes forth that we weren't able to really deal with is the doctrine of original sin. Original sin is that sin that is imputed from Adam to all of mankind. How we view sin is of the utmost importance. How we understand the nature of sin and what the Bible teaches about sin and its impact and effect on humanity is crucial in order for us to understand our need for a Savior and even understand things such as our will, how we understand the issue of free will and what free will is and what it's not. There was, um, in church history, a debate between Augustine and the Pelagians. But Pelagian comes from the name of a man named Pelagius. And he believed we were born morally neutral. Morally neutral is what he believed. So therefore, if you're born morally neutral, you're neither bad nor good. And so Augustine quite ably defended the biblical view that no, we're born with the sin of Adam and, and all of our faculties are corrupt as a result. Eventually, the Roman Catholic Church began to Apart from Augustine's view and developed what's known as the idea of concupiscence. And that's a big word, but it's a word that's common in theological circles. And the way Roman Catholics will define that is almost in a Pelagian way. In that we have an inclination to sin, but that's not sin itself. And so they take a different view. But what is the biblical view of sin? I've given you the Pelagian view, and I've given you the modern-day view of sin. I would venture to say a large part of the evangelical world does not fall into a Protestant understanding of sin, but rather falls into a Pelagian view of sin. Man is good, and inherently good, and able to choose, of his own free will, good. I would say that's in large part the way not only our society thinks about mankind, but even in the church. Here's the reality. If we do not understand how sin affects us, not only do we not recognize our need for a Savior, but we are then defenseless in fighting sin. You know the adage of know your enemy. We must know what sin is and how it has impacted every part of us. The Confession of Faith, the London 1689, says this in chapter 6. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. And we in them, in other words, we fell in Adam. We fell in Adam and Eve, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled, in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. In other words, the corruption of sin impacts every aspect of the human being. That doesn't mean that we're all walking around 
as if we were all Adolf Hitlers. That's not what it's saying. It's also shows us this, is that Adolf Hitler wasn't as bad as he could have been. It's simply saying there's not a part of the human soul that is unaffected by the reality of sin. It has tainted the entirety of a person. Now we see this so clearly in Genesis chapter 6, and I, I said verse 4, it's verse 5. This morning I was off by a verse, and this evening I'm off by a verse. It's verse 5, excuse me. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a description of the depravity of man. That is a description of man as a result of the fall. Now you could read this and say that was prior to the flood and because that was prior to the flood, then it's not true of us. It was true of them, but God took care of that. The problem with holding to that view is that the Bible says actually the opposite and continues to describe mankind in these exact same ways. And you see that consistently throughout Scripture. And just as one example, in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 21, we read this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind... Not speaking of not even, not even action of sin, but the where sin resides in this mind, and it results, as Paul says, doing evil deeds. It shows the place of where sin begins, and then where sin then acts out into evil deeds. And that's in the New Testament saying virtually the same thing that we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And it begins with a general statement of the wickedness of man in this, that the God saw, or the Lord saw, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now that statement is pointing back to a couple of things. When you look at the tragedy of the fall, the first result of the fall is that Cain murders Abel. And you see the violence that comes from that. Then the seventh from Adam in Lamech is a man that, that brags and sings a song about killing. Lamech was his name, not the father of Moses. And so there's a bragging, there's an embracing, uh, a boasting of, of violence of Cain. And then you get to chapter 5 and you read of this line of Seth and that God has a people for himself. And the pinnacle of that is the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth, which is Enoch, who goes to walk with the Lord and the Lord takes him and he knows him no more. And you read of this wonderful line of Seth. You read of this prophecy of Noah, one who will come and save the people. And then you get to chapter 6, and you see this beautiful line of Seth all of a sudden tarnished. You see that beginning in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The line of Seth looks at the line of, Seth, of, of Cain and says, those are good-looking women. 
we're going to start marrying them. And that's what happens is now, no longer does the line of Seth embrace their heritage as being that godly line, that line that is set apart, but now actually they're intermarrying with the Canaanites. So the Sethites disregard their heritage that they have. They disregard the grace that God had put upon that line of Seth and the faithful. And so when you see the corruption of mankind, it's not just merely the wickedness and the violence of Cain, it's now also the line of Seth is intermarrying with them because of looks, because they were attracted to the daughters of Cain. When you get to verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of who are of old, the men of renown. Now there's not only this attraction, there's now a line that comes from this mixed group. You think of Nehemiah and his response when he came back and found that there was intermarriage with pagans and Nehemiah's response to that. Well, this is the same thing that's happening here very clearly off the beginning of this. And so when it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, he's talking about the line of Seth now is compromised. Well, where's righteousness? Well, according to this verse, there was none. There was a total disregard for God. And so we move from this idea of a general wickedness to the text then moves into this idea of an internal wickedness. And internal wickedness is this, every intention of the thoughts. It's not what we do that's mentioned here. And that's the condemning part of this verse. That's the convicting part of this verse. It's not talking about what we do outwardly. It's talking about our thoughts. That's the one thing that we oftentimes let go. It's not about what we do, but rather here it's mentioning our thoughts. Intention. It says the intention of the thoughts, which is, is, is actually what qualifies this whole section of how we understand and think about thoughts. The idea of intention is sometimes translated as framing something. It's framing something into a shape. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, in verse 21, <clears throat> we see a use of this word like this. Is, and when many evils and troubles have come upon them, for this song shall comfort them as a witness... For it will live unforgotten in their mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined, there's that word, to do even today. What they were formed to do, what their natural disposition is. What's that speaking of? That's speaking of the depravity of the heart. And so when it speaks of thoughts and it's combined with that idea of intention, it's actually combining the ideas of a depraved heart or a depraved mind with thoughts combined together. And that actually thoughts themselves are sinful. Now thoughts here, if you continue to look upon that word and reflect upon what it means, 
It can mean um, meditation, it can mean design, or it can even mean invention. And so that is the things that are thought about, the things that are going on in our mind that no one else sees, that only we have, and sometimes we don't even understand. <laughs> Thomas Goodwin says, this is what our thoughts, he says, they are all the internal acts of the mind of man. Of what faculty soever, all those reasonings, consultations, purposes, resolutions, intents, ends, desires, and cares of the mind of man, as opposed to our external words and actions. So whatever can take place in the unseen world and the recesses of our mind is what the thoughts are. That's what's being described here. It's everything from our reasoning, as he says, consultations, our desires, our ends, even the cares of our minds. And so the intentions of those, the framing of those thoughts. Now notice what it says. Every intention of thoughts. This is a universal condemnation upon the men in the pre-Diluvian era. And that all of mankind's thoughts had some sort of selfish end about them. This is speaking about the universality of the fall of mankind and that there was no man that did righteousness. Again, the confession says that they are wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. There's nothing that is not touched by this. You think every thought, every intention was really evil? Well, if you're not regenerate, the answer is yes. You know, think about it. What is the end of my thoughts? What motivates the thoughts? Now, we have to be careful about this. Mark Jones, in his book called Knowing Sin, writes this, quote, We live in a fallen world with many evil things before our eyes and deep within our hearts. We process things not simply by sight, but by our understanding. The mere viewing of or reflection upon sin is not sinful. Now, listen to what he says. Because you go wrong on what he says here, you, you end up in a Pelagian view or in a Roman Catholic view. He says, for example, witnessing or thinking about someone committing murder does not necessarily mean we have committed sin, since we can either disapprove or approve of the action. The intention of the thoughts from the heart determines the character of the thought. End quote. Can our thoughts be sinful? Yes. When the will, when we will the thought, let's say, for instance, in Jones's example of murder, we witness it, we see it on the news, we reflect upon it and go, wow, that's horrible. We reflect upon it and there's some sort of sick delight in it the will just moved into sin. You think of Jesus was tempted. 
Temptation was brought before his human mind, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in all ways we are, yet without sin. So a thought coming into the mind not necessarily means it's sinful, because Christ had those things. He also did not have a depraved mind. So we see that internal wickedness, but then let us look at the residence of this wickedness. Where is this wickedness housed? It's of his heart was only evil continually. That's what the text says. So Luther says the heart is a thought workshop. The heart is a thought workshop. That's where we produce thoughts. <clears throat> what is the biblical testimony of the heart in regards to our thoughts? Well, many familiar passages in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 19 comes to mind. And when we read this, I'm excuse me, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, you can think of this, I like to think of verse 9 as a question, and verse 10 is, a, is an answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Isn't it incredible that the Lord is even here judging just the heart and what comes out of that? But what does it say about the heart? It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then if we continue to look, Jesus says something very similar in Mark chapter 7. When Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. So, take with what Jeremiah said, what Jesus says, and you, you can understand then the point of Genesis 6-5 is because the heart is something's wrong with the heart, the result of something being wrong with the heart is the thoughts themselves of man are messed up. That evil comes out of them. <clears throat> Jesus says, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And Jesus says that post-flood. Jeremiah says this post-flood. And so the idea that our thoughts are just benign, even when they're wicked, the Bible completely rejects that idea. And the Bible confronts us with the reality that because of a, of a, a depraved heart, and out of the heart come thoughts, our thoughts themselves are sinful. Notice how Jeremiah, again, links thoughts in the heart. In Jeremiah 4.14, he says, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? <clears throat> the heart is the center of man. The heart is what makes a man man. And what this means is that the very center of man is something that is desperately sick and corrupt. Something in the center of who we are as people is not, well, they're a good person, but rather, no, they're a corrupted person. 
If we don't view mankind in this sense and expose this, as I said, well then I'm good enough before God. Also, as a Christian, if I don't understand the nature of sin, how do I even fight sin? How do I deal with sin in my life? Well, there's a couple of things I I want to point out. First of all, God judges our actions, those things that we do, those the impulses that begin inwardly and we do outwardly. God God judges those things. And, and Jesus makes it clear, Matthew 7, 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is speaking of their actions. So you you think, okay. If I think a sin and that is, I'm guilty before God and sinful because of it, I might as well go ahead and do the sin. That's a, that's a fallacy. That's a horrible way to think. We judge more harshly for the actual acting out of the sin. There, but, but with that being said, we could, we could go into another direction and say, well, I didn't. I didn't do the sin, I only thought the sin, so because I only thought the sin, it's actually not that bad. That's also a fallacious way to think. That's not how the Bible captures this. Actually, the Bible makes it very clear that we will be judged and are judged for our thoughts. Notice what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, what's what's the key word there? Intent. The intention of the heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus doesn't view this as an okay thing to commit adultery in the heart. He says it's adultery. It's adultery. I, I think we have to take this seriously. Our society has, has really, today, taken a very light view of adultery. We say, well, there was an affair, or they were, there was cheating. What have we done? We've removed what the Bible calls sin and using the language the Bible uses and replaced it with something that kind of softens it. We know the pain of it. But there's something that we have to see here so clearly is that it actually begins in the heart. And if we allow that to reside in the heart, at some point, that's probably going to turn into actions. But even if it doesn't, even if we excuse ourselves and says, well, it was just in my mind, no one knows. What does Jesus say? We've actually already sinned. And here's the frightening truth of that idea that no one, no one knows. You read Matthew 9, 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why did you think evil in your thoughts? So if we think that, well, it's only in my 
my knowledge and only in my realm and only in my heart. Only, only I know these sins. No, Jesus knows your thoughts. And he's asking, why, why did you think evil in your hearts? God judges our thoughts. Let that sink in. That's frightening, isn't it? Voluntary thoughts, involuntary thoughts. And because we, we do get those, Acts chapter 8, verse 17, we read this story. It says, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, listen to this, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. The intent of your heart. He's judged upon the contents of his thoughts in his heart. Now, the, the, the thing is, is that we have crazy thoughts that pop into our mind. And what we have to realize is the power of those thoughts. James teaches us this in chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, that is, that desire is now ruminated upon in the heart. It's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so that's an amazing statement. The desire precedes action. That's the progression. Again, when we think about this, people do not know our thoughts. People see our actions, but they don't know what our thoughts are. This is why you, you are so shocked and should be shocked when you see a faithful Christian pastor fall in immorality. And you're shocked by it because you've seen their outward actions and you've heard their words and then all of a sudden they're caught up in some adulterous affair and they fall from grace and you, you, you're shocked by it because you saw what powerful life they had lived but what we didn't see what was in their heart. What we didn't see, what was in their thought, what they were cultivating in their mind, unchecked. Notice what Solomon, or David's charge to Solomon is, is this, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. So there's no idle thought that slips by God as if God's not aware of it. While people do not know, and we can hide from people, God knows it all. Would we be ashamed if people could 
peer into our mind and, and peer into our thoughts. And if, if what we were thinking was displayed visibly before people, would we be ashamed of that? Well, I think so. So why do we think the way we do? Why do we have thoughts that come into our mind and we go, oh, that was horrible, or we, we sit and linger on it? Well, we're born in a state of sin. That's the first thing we have to understand. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that we are born in Adam. We're, we're born spiritually dead. But there's another thing that we have to recognize is this is our own personal experience contributes to our thoughts. And this is, a, this, is a, this is a reality. This is the consequences of sin in our lives. You know, we know and recognize we're, we're forgiven in Christ. But very quickly, we can go back to past experiences, past sin, and then all of a sudden, were our minds there? What do we do with those thoughts? Do we meditate upon those thoughts? Do we hold those thoughts and excuse ourselves because no one can see it? What we have to be reminded is if God sees these thoughts. One other thing is why we think the way we do is that there's often the practice of what theologians call speculative wickedness. What is speculative wickedness? Letting your thoughts run wild with sinful thoughts. Just allowing thoughts to go through the mind and chasing them and speculating upon those things. Meditating again on something. You know, as we were talking about Thomas Manton the other night, and we saw the point that was so clearly brought out is that you're meditating upon something all the time. What is it that we're meditating upon? So how do we deal with sin? How do we deal with sin? There's a couple of things that we need to understand in chapter 9 of the Confession, which is of free will. It, it describes, first of all, man in a fourfold state. What's man in a fourfold state? Man in a fourfold state is man before the fall, which is Adam. Man after the fall, that's unregenerate. Man in a state of grace. And man glorified. That's the fourfold state of man. Well, we have to understand something about being in Christ, and that is this. When God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin. Speaking of our freedom in Christ. And by his grace alone enables him to freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Meaning in a state of grace, we can do good. Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good. There's the, there's the exception, is that because we are not yet glorified, because we have not been set free, our wills are still not entirely free. 
So while we can in Christ, we've been set free from the bondage of sin and can do good, we still sin. We still have corruptions. And we can't do this perfectly. And that is why we will also will that which is evil. But the Bible makes us so clear that we have been set free. As Paul describes in Romans chapter 6, the idea of being slaves to sin or being slaves to righteousness. And that in Christ we are set free. So the first thing is, is that you have to recognize is that if you're in Christ here tonight, you can think evil thoughts and you can think good thoughts. That's something the unregenerate person cannot say. And so you can think things that are good. And we have to recognize that as Christians, the Spirit is continually working in us. We see in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So you have the Spirit of God working in you. You have been set free. But how do we, how do we tap into this? Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is it that we put before our eyes? What is it that we fill our mind with? And because we all have a BC period in our lives before Christ, and if you are in Christ, you have a, in the day of our Lord, part of your life. Because of that reality, we, we have experiences and thoughts, even, even when we go through periods of time of, of maybe backsliding from the Lord. And so, how does this process of renewing our mind work? Well, very simply, it is filling our minds with God's Word. It is filling our minds with God's word, God's word. How can a young man keep his way clear? By the Word of God. And so how is it that, that we deal with these thoughts? Well, you know, the obvious thing is you recognize you're free in Christ. And so now you can go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me with these things. And then the Lord isn't going to, by some sort of... Um, passive way of just letting this happen. No, he's going to work through you as you're working through God's word and depending upon him and his grace. It means you're putting the word of God before you and so that you're, you're no longer thinking uh, those thoughts, but actually you're thinking God's thoughts after him. Paul wrote this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought. Instead of now every thought is evil in its intention, it's now every thought is to be taken captive by Christ. What has Christ done for you? Christ has set you free so you don't have to think wicked thoughts. 
Now there's something else. Is we have to take ownership of wicked thoughts. We have to own it. And we have to repent of it. We have to make acknowledgement of evil thoughts in our minds. I, and I think that we need to confess it. I don't think our confessing before the Lord is just merely, I did this action or I said these hurtful words. Our confessions before the Lord is, Lord, my thoughts, my thoughts testify against me. Lord, help me with my thoughts. And then be encouraged with this, that we have a Savior that no sinful thought ran through his mind once. We have a, a perfect Savior and, and never acted upon a sinful temptation, but rather was perfect and obedient to the Father in all ways. And our trust is not in how well we deal with wicked thoughts that go through our mind. Our trust and our assurance is in Christ in whom there's only perfection and righteousness and holiness. And that's our hope. And if we want to deal with wicked thoughts, if we want to deal with the problem of sin, even in the Christian life, we have to look no other place than the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, that motivates us, that drives us. God's grace drives us to pursue holiness because he's so gracious to us. And so even when we are conflicted with our thoughts or our failures to be in the progress of renewing our minds, we recognize that in our great Savior, there is great forgiveness. And in him, we are forgiven. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know these words of the human heart and the human condition are true because we've, we've all experienced it. We all fight with it. We are like the man that is torn, that wants to do what's right, but oftentimes we don't. So we thank you for your grace that comes to us through Christ we thank you for your word that is a guidance for us and that your spirit is working in us that to will and work good according to your good pleasure, that you have set us apart, that you have made us different. We rejoice in these truths, but we also recognize that we, we struggle. So we pray for your grace. We pray for your help. We pray for your forgiveness and the grace to admit and to acknowledge our shortcomings, and to look to you for help. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.